out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of Mark Williams, more commonly known as Spike or Spike Williams, Welsh guitarist and co-founder of the South Wales record label Z Blocks, Z Block Records, and also, uh, yes, work with such people as the Young Marble Giants and. Um, also with Alison Stetton. So, um, look, there's just loads about it, so I'm not going to re- read this. You'll just have to listen to the interview. So, um, yes, after several minutes of casual chat, we got down to the very exciting subject that was the early musical influences. Yes, that moment when suddenly music became everything. Spike, it's over to you. My, 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 my entire family, going back generations, are all musicians. So I was uh, classically trained on the violin from an early age. And I suppose I must have been kind of okay at it. I I was in the Gwent Youth Orchestra as a teenager. And, you know, so, yeah, that kind of disciplined classical approach, um, that's kind of in the blood. But, of course, uh, when it comes to doing music, A, the violin's not very cool. No. Um, it's much cooler these days, but when, you know, sort of uh, up the valleys, it's a very narrow-minded sort of environment, Yeah, yeah. you know what I mean? Um, very old-fashioned, very sort of strict in its kind of ways. Um, and, yeah, we didn't fit in culturally. Uh, I don't know what's going on next door, but... Somebody's taking up the trombone. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. I mean, it was, it was, you know, creatively um, sort of stifling environment. So we were, we, um, it was basically a bunch of schoolmates. Uh, we formed a band. Then, of course, we discovered at the age of fifteen, the bass player was just atrocious. So we, rather than get rid of him, we sort of made him a kind of manager. <laughs> and so the the three remaining guys, um, we were all in the, the same class in uh, Newbridge School, which is like nestled between two coal mines. Um, yeah, we formed a band and it became Reptile Ranch. Yes. And in 1978, we decided we're going to make a record company. And actually, before we'd had a name for the band, we... Um, set up the record company we, with Scree Politi's um, very, very strong support, albeit through Mailbox, you know. Yeah. Um, they gave us some really good tips and a great deal of encouragement because uh, Green and Jinx were South Walesians as well. So, you know, we had that in common. And, um, yeah, we had a really strong relationship with... Uh, with um, Scritty Politi, who also turned us on to Rough Trade, um, who were just in, in the very early days, and obviously in 78. Um, so we did that, and then we, we moved to release, release our first single, and the most bizarre coincidence of all time. Coming back from picking up the single, my dad was driving the car. He's feeling a bit drowsy, which is unusual for him. So, well, you better have a cup of coffee. Pulled into the service station, 
And who pulled up in a van right next to us? It was pretty pretty. Oh, blimey. And it was just, this is insane. Um, so we had to have, you know, the photo booth. Uh, photos just to prove it actually happened. Uh, Ian Penman wrote a review, not so much of the single as this bizarre meeting in the motorway service station. So that was our first press. Wow. And then basically we moved to Cardiff. Um, four guys sharing one room in uh, a pretty down market part of Cardiff called Splot. And we did our first gig in a place called Grassroots which unbelievably is still going. Um, it's kind of a youth centre for like young people. Coffee bar, occasionally they, you know, they do gigs, um, free, you know, just free gigs, so generally early in the evening as well. But it was one of the few places where you could play if you were any, any, anywhere outside the mainstream. Hence, Young Marble Giants did their first gig there, which um, I was present at. And um, Reptile Lunch, I think we did our gig a couple of weeks before them. Right. So that was that was kind of... So did you know the members of the Young Marble Giants by then? No, we met them through the, um, that circuit. <laughs> and, you know, obviously because we had, neither of us had a drummer, which is really unusual. They used the... Um, uh, well, at that time they were using a sort of quarter-inch tape player and which made the performance really really bizarre because the tapes were cut to sort of random length so <laughs> at the end of every song Phil Moxon would be lining up the next track you know and um, it was all part of the performance and they were really sort of very serious Alison I only later learned it was she was petrified but looking just stony you know staring into the nothingness an atmosphere that was just, you know, you knew the first time you saw that band, it's like, oh, my God, these are just something special. Yes. So, of course, we in a very small city like Cardiff, doing something that's offbeat, we became yeah, really good friends. Um, and by bizarre coincidence, my first girlfriend was a second cousin of the Moxons. So it was like, that's part of the family. <laughs> you know what I mean? And it's been like that ever since. You know, we've all, we're all... You know, we've lived in each other's pockets, literally. You know, we've we've um, we've been a lot more than sort of musical collaborators. We and and it remains like that. You know, it's it, it is sort of it is family. So. Yes. So then, that's, that's a nice nice thing. Well, it's amazing, and it's because not many stories often in that that nicely or develop and then continue. You know, often it's um. Well, it's, it, you know, to be honest, David, it started off a little bit sort of rocky in a way because immediately after we organised our single, uh, we sat about, we put a poster up in Grassroots saying first eight bands to raise, I think it was 120 quid um, for an eight-minute slot on a compilation album and with no quality control whatsoever. It's like first come, first served. Um and we were desperate to get the Young Marble Giants on that. But, of course, Stuart was like, well, you know, we've got our own plans and la, la, la. And uh, so we had eight bands lined up, and it didn't include the Young Marble Giants. And then, by a bizarre quirk of fate, one of the bands pulled out at the last minute. And then we essentially bullied the Young Marble Giants into making a contribution 
we may have made some concessions even. But anyway, we made sure that they were on that album. And of course, it, Rough Trade had guaranteed a certain number of sales. Yeah, they're going to buy X number, which basically covered our costs, so we couldn't lose anything. Yeah. Um, so well, that was very supportive. Obviously, Jeff Travis, brilliant guy, he helped us out a lot. Um, and then the album got to into Rough Trade's hands, and they called. The number on the back of the album was actually a public telephone box over the road <laughs> from our flat, right? So Rough Trade phoned that telephone box. Eight-year-old kids knocking on our door saying, this, um, Mr. Z-Block, Mr. Z-Block, this is a telephone call from Mr. Z-Block. It's like, all right, okay. So I went over, answered the phone, and it was, uh, it was Rough Trade saying, we've got to get a hold of the Immobile Giants. Now, in a, it's only recently sort of been admitted Stuart had plans. He was off to Germany, I believe, with his girlfriend, Wendy Smith, who did all the artwork for Weekend. Right. Um, and they were planning to, to leave the country. And essentially, Young Mole Giants had split up before that album came out. And it was only the album coming out that kept the band together. And the rest, as they say, is history. But, it, uh, you know, from our point of view, Reptile Ranch and Zedlock, we were thinking... Oh God, we should get you know we should get a deal out of it as well, but we never did. No, but yeah, it was it was obviously very very proud to have played a role in putting the young mole joints out there. Absolutely, um, and they utterly deserved it. I mean, they're you know utterly unique. So yeah, yes, yes. Well, jealous? So- yeah, probably probably a little bit, but they deserved it. Yes, and then and then sort of, but the band split in the early 80s and you started working with Alison quite soon after that didn't you? Yeah well it's funny because um, about a year after the release there was a program again it came out of grassroots a youth program run by the, the BBC used to kind of regional thing and for Cardiff they recruited a bunch of people that included me and uh we were involved in doing the show. I ended up interviewing a bunch of rasters, one of whom I'm still in contact with. I'm living literally across the hall from the flat where the, the, the interview was recorded. Um, so, uh, and we fought for Young Marble Giants to be on that show. So there's, there is still this footage of that gig. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was the good. And at the end of that party, the other band on the show was The Damned. So we had a after after show party and uh, all a little bit pissed but um and i sort of that's when at the end of that party that's when i suggested to alison we should do something but it wasn't for another year when the band had just split up that alison and i started writing yeah basically just before she moved to london we'd written about a third of the weekend album and then we merged with simon and it became like a more a broader sort of a more jazzy kind of project. Right. Because the, the 80s had a lot of... There was quite a few bands, weren't there? There was Working Week mm. and obviously Sade a little bit in the beginning. And then well, was... work, yeah, Working Week came out of Weekend. There was a bit of a messy breakup because Alison was really not well at the end of that when we did the Ronnie Scott's recording. She was not well at all and I was very concerned for how... Um, uh, and there was this issue of, you know, professionalism, you know, the show must go on and all that. And I just thought, oh, that's, 
she's more than a work colleague. You know, she's actually my friend, and I'm 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 not prepared to risk her health for the sake of you know a couple of gigs. But that's how we came, uh, working we came about was from gigs that were still booked that weekend couldn't do. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and bizarrely, I'm still in touch with Simon as well. I played on the Afro-Celt Sound System album uh, a couple of years ago. And yeah, about four of the tracks on there, I can hear there's a little bit of me there. I'm very proud of that as well, actually. Yes, well, I remember the first Working Week album, which was Working Nights, which came out, I mm-hmm. think, on Virgin Records. But, mm-hmm. And, um, you know, we were all terribly excited, God knows. And so, yes, how weird. I'm just sort of digesting the whole exciting information, really. Yes, so, so, everything, so everything was moving very fast for you at this stage. That was, it was moving faster than that because while I was still doing Weekend, I was r- running a parallel project in Cardiff, a band called Table Table. And some of that material came out just last year on a CD from Tiny Global, John Henderson's label. Fantastic label, doing fantastic stuff. I'll tell you a little bit more about that in a bit, because I just, uh, a couple of months ago, was down doing a session with um, Jim Rogers, who's, what an exciting person she is. And Taylor too, I don't know whether you've heard of them, but watch this space, they're absolutely fabulous. Um, but going back to the table table business, that project, and, and you know, I mean, you look back after like four years and think, well, maybe I, maybe I should have been more focused. Um, but yeah, anyway, I was very loyal to that project, and I continued to do that um, while we, weekend was running, and um, a little bit beyond that until. Yes. Stuart Moxon turned up on the dual step once again and <laughs> ended up living with us for about six months. And Table Table suddenly became the backing unit for The Gist. Did a, did a little bit of playing around with Stuart. Blimey. So the yeah, end... it's all rather incestuous, isn't it? My God, well, it's, <laughs> yes, I sort of should have got a bit of paper and sort of written some of these... Um... A sort of some sort of diagram down. So, as because the eighties, I mean, it was quite interesting at that period because there had been definitely sort of eighty three for a, I don't know. I always think eighty three to eighty five is that kind of year that indie pop really became a thing, and basically it's the years of the Smiths, really. But um, and then sort of at about eighty seven, eighty eight, things changed because ecstasy came in. But you were obviously sort of very dynamic during that period as well. And, and well, we were also very independent. I think the end of, this is what, I was talking to John Henderson yesterday about this, and it's like, from that period from 83 onwards, indie became a sound and a genre, whereas prior to that, and the indie that we knew and loved, and what, what you know, the reason we wanted to be indie was because it wasn't a sound, it was a, um, an outlook, you know, it was a, a political, you know, manifesto. Um, independence, freedom to do whatever you want, you know. Yes. Um, including sort of poppy jazz, which was, you know, it was genuinely independent because it was like through rough trade, you know, we, we, we had a contract, yeah, sure, but we they never once came to the studio when we were working. Yeah, 
And and so when because weekend split in eighty three, um, and yeah. then you formed uh, Bomb and Dagger with with mm-hmm. uh, various other Cardiff musicians. Did yeah. and, and so what was the kind of and that sort of went for the rest of the decade, didn't it? Before sort of um, slightly sort of grinding to a halt. It did, but I mean, what uh, from my perspective, what happened there was um, I sort of retreated i'm going to use that word because i wasn't conscious of it at the time because i had opportunities in london that now i you know i just think why why didn't i take those opportunities everything was happening in london but out of loyalty because the singer of table table and bomb and dagger was my partner at the time debbie debris debbie pritchard right um, so obviously I had a, a, a huge amount of loyalty to that. Um, some may say and have said, you know, misplaced loyalty. I don't think so. You know, I was, I was dedicated to that. What happened at that time also was that Alison and I, and it was arrogant in the extreme on my part, I, Alison and I, because Alison had been on, on, you know, two of the most successful bands on rough trade up to that point in terms of what we were very cheap young old giants and weekend we were relatively low cost bands and generated relatively very very high sales by their standards so we you know we were the most profitable bands on the label and it seems like well it's only common sense isn't it to keep Alison involved and we put a demo to Jeff and he just flatly refused it and because we didn't have a manager, it was like, well, what do we do now? Yes. Um, and <clears throat> essentially, we didn't do anything, um, which is a shame, because, um, yeah. Uh, but anyway, these things happened. So what I did, I suppose, was uh, I got very heavily involved with left-wing politics. Um, I We did a lot of benefit gigs. We were very much involved with um, anti-apartheid, anti-apartheid movement. And the ANC. Yes. So did Red uh, Wedge come into your consciousness of that? Because there was a lot of, you know, like the SWP and um, the Red Wedge Wedge movement, you know, and and all that kind of stuff, like the Redskins and and, and Billy Bragg and, you know, Paul Weller became sort of moving that around the country. So was that also, because at that time in the 80s, there'd been Thatcher and the Miners and Scargill and we'd had the Falklands at the beginning of the decade. So the 80s got very supercharged and then obviously there was a desperation. Well, I mean, Bomb and Tagger was formed specifically to raise money for the miners. That's, that was the raise on Detra. And would you believe Alison Staten was a backing singer in that band? Right. Lineup? <laughs> but it was very much, this is like, we've got to raise money for these guys. We, we knew, especially myself coming from the valleys, the mining valley, it's, we know firsthand, you know, what these people are going through. Yes. So that was the reason we formed the band. And then it sort of developed other things. Um, and, uh, you know, things get very party political when you, you get involved in, in, in political parties. Um, but we sort of made our stance. The main thing I think we were doing was the anti-apartheid thing, which was, you know, sort of for us, it sort of spanned um, general sort of left politics. It didn't, they didn't demand too much of us in terms of loyalty until... The local organizer discovered we were Trotskyists. Right. Oh, are you still there? 
at the at the same time the ANC were asking us to be like their UK band, you know. Uh, it, it was a really strange situation. But yeah, I mean, we got into that and I, I decided, well, the industry is not something I understand. Um, so we'll just make a living out of just doing live music. We did a couple of recordings, but mainly it was, we were a live band. And if, I don't know if you've heard um, the Debbie and Spike album. There's a couple of live things on there. There's one from Geneva, especially. That's like we've been playing like for over a month solid, like literally every night bar one, three forty-five minute sets every day. And so by the end of it, by the time we arrived in Geneva, we were just so ridiculously tired. It's like it's quite spectacular, you know, for a six-piece band. What we were knocking out. Yeah, we're just playing them. Blimey. Yeah. That's fantastic. So when, so God, because most people I, I interview have about a five-year narrative before they, they decide they can't take it anymore. But you're, you're, mm-hmm. you've, you've got sort of uh, stamina here, haven't you? Because you go into the 90s and start working with Charlotte. Um, on, yeah, on another... yeah, good. I'm glad, you, I'm glad you're aware of that. Yes, yeah. well, you're, Charlotte. You're, yeah, and, and sort of, you know, Yes, most people get sort of their hearts broken and then become bitter and twisted and then, you know, spend 20 years trying to avoid thinking about it. But obviously you've sort of, you've gone through the late 70s, the 80s and and phenomenal amount of people. And then, yeah, so how did you find Charlotte? She found me. Right. And again, there's a really bizarre Z-plot connection. Um, her husband, John Williams, was, he actually moved into our flat where Z-Block was based in Splot. Um, he came around with his friend Charles. And what was the... Was it Ripton Tour? Um, the Janet and Tom's, they formed a band. Uh, but, um, yeah, anyway, he's a journalist um, and a writer with the most spectacular record collection. And he moved in, so he was part of the furniture. So, yeah, it was like 10 years later... Uh, when I moved to London because um, my girlfriend was pregnant, um, John hooked me up with Charlotte, and yeah, we we worked together for a few years. We did first band was was that the yeah the Charlotte Greg and the Mountain Kings. We did some stuff, and then we became Crow Country, which was I think a much more appropriate name. Did some stuff. Yeah, so we kept that going for a little while. Um, Drew Moxham, which is one of the Moxham brothers, was on drums. Yeah, both those both those units. So which, even with that, there was like a, a strong Cardiff connection. Yes, and then so as the nineties, that that sort of um, yeah. musical adventure comes to a close. You then hook up with Alison again and record. With the sport of you know rough trade, um, back in the studio making another album. Well, what actually happened was we pretty early on when I moved to London, I thought, well, let's see what I can do. You know, um, went to see Jeff, said, look, um, we've got some songs, played him some very simple ideas, and sort of persuaded him to get us some fundings to do a demo, which we recorded in a studio in Butetown, um, in a guy called 
uh, Tony Atoria. I don't know whether you've ever heard of him. He was in Osibisa for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, amazing guy, amazing guy. Um, but yeah, we uh, we recorded in the studio, took the demo back to Jeff, and he said, no, we're not going to be picking this one up. But he said, look, you, you, you can hear the masters, you can do what, do what you will with them, fine. So then a little while later, um, we encountered, and this is via Stuart, they'd, they'd already sort of picked up um, Stuart, and Stuart put me onto them. And so that's Tetsuya Nakatani, um, Vinyl Japan. They heard the demo and immediately released it as a, um, an EP, CDEP, yeah. and signed us up for doing an album, which was the title Belize album. And then a little while later, we did another album. But that, that spanned, well, probably six years from the demo recording yes. to the final album, which was, um, what was it called? Shady Tree. Tree. Right. Uh, and then, then we did a very short tour of Japan. <laughs> so how did you, because Vinyl Japan, well, one of those labels that suddenly appeared... Well, it did in my life. And then, you know, and they were so handy because they'd kind of got a lot of uh, albums that I couldn't get hold of anymore and compilations and collections, including Girls yeah. girls at Our Best. So how did you find working with them? Because they seem like they were really keen. I know Julian Henry, who was in the Hit Parade. Again, they, they sort of funded a few things and a tour. So how did you, how did you, your, how was your experience working with them? Well, it's pretty much like working with anybody, really, because with, with every time that I'm dealing with a record company or anybody who's funding anything, I said, you realise that you're not going to have any control whatsoever over what we're doing. I said, you, you give us the money and we'll give you the tapes. And that's it. There's no negotiation. You'll you get what you're given. And as, if you're happy with that, then let's proceed. Yes. So, um, but yeah, I mean, Tetsuya, his English is not great. Um, but it gave me my first trip to Japan. Ironically, I absolutely hated it. I swore I'd never go back. Um, but that was all down to culture shock, really. I didn't, I, I didn't have any idea anything could be so different. Right. Um, but on the back of that, I made some really great Japanese friends in London. Then I got to know about Japanese culture, and then I realised I'd been a complete dick. I got, I totally misunderstood everything about Japan. I tried to apply Western values to what I was experiencing, and it's like, that's not going to work. Um, but yeah, so, and also throughout the 90s, I, I was working in a, what was actually a really swanky sort of market research company. So I was building a career at the same time because my son had been born in 1991, and that kind of you know, you've got to put the stabilizers on your life, you know, when you're, you've got a family to support. So mm. I was doing that for, um, main, for the first seven years, I was like freelance. I had control over, you know, um, being able to look after a, a sickly child and do my share of the, you know, the, the child care, um, all that kind of thing. So it was a really convenient thing. Um, and they were also very encouraging of me doing music, you know. Yes. So that was partly the reason I got the job in the first place because the managing director was a weekend fan and had been to the, you know, seen the gigs. So it was like, that was really cool. So that helped land me a, 
proper job. Um, and then I went to Japan on my own as a researcher and I had a completely, you know, armed with a few phrases and a little understanding of Japanese culture. I came away with a completely different understanding of Japan. I completely fell in love with the culture. Which? Ended up marrying a Japanese woman, um, you know, so. <laughs> well, and, and living a Japanese, you know, very much a, like a samurai lifestyle for 15 years, so. Blimey. Um, yeah, that was, that, was, that was interesting. And I'm still very much, a, you know, Japanophile. Yes. Learning Japanese now, learning to read and write Japanese now, just in case I end up there again. You never know. We never. So Which when, I'd love to do. So you've, like a lot of people, we all love a bit of archiving, and you've already done it before we had the great shutdown of 2020, because you got your mm -hmm. material kind of um, reissued by various people, including good old Cherry Red Records, which obviously mm -hmm. uh, you can't go anywhere without Cherry Red. So what's what's been your kind of latest and uh, projects that you've been sort of working on? Right, well, so a couple of years ago, we had a release of the Debian Spike stuff, which covered Table Table and Bomb and Dagger, and then a little project called The Pepper Trees, which was commissioned by John Henderson, which was a kind of reworking of songs that we written throughout the 80s um, from start to finish. Um, that came out, um, Always Sunshine, Always Rain, and the title track on that, I hadn't heard it for 30 odd years. And when I heard it, I just burst into tears. It's like, oh my God, such naivety, such innocence, it's so pure. If you haven't heard it, check it out. It's on, on that album. Um, always sunshine, always rain. Um, title oh. track. And oh. It's. I mean, all right. Am I blowing my own trumpet? No, it was collaborative effort, but it's something utterly, utterly beautiful. So please check that one out. It was such a discovery after about thirty-five years of not hearing it. Oh, wait a minute. I just want always sunshine, always rain. Always rain, yeah. So that's that's the album that came out on Tiny Global um, about a year and a half ago, right? A year ago, maybe. Um, and it's like I said, it's it's very diverse because it covers like Table Table, Bomb Taker, and all sorts of other stuff in between. Um, also on Tiny Global, released Bimini Twist with uh, Alison Staten, and that. Um, there's bits of that. A lot of people have said there's lots of stuff on there that is really reminiscent of Weekend. But that's not really surprising because a lot of the stuff that Weekend did was written by Alison and me, you know, originally. So there's a kind of consistency to it. And it's much more, I would say, mainstream in content. It's yes. quite, yeah, there's some quite confident stuff going on there. That's definitely worth a listen, Bimini Twist. Um, you know, I mean, can't, can't, can't thank John Henderson enough, really, for everything he's done. Um, he put, he's put together some really beautiful project, you know, products that uh, without him would just wouldn't have seen the light of day. And now the latest thing I've done, which is earlier this year, is with um, uh, Tale of Two. Um, Unfortunately, Alfie was in Austria when I was down there in the studio, but that was nice. It's with Gemma Rogers. I've just done a couple of string arrangements or bits and just added something to the mix. 
Um, but with Gemma, it's one of those things, I'd only met her once before, and we just hit it off like best mates, you know, it's probably 30-year age difference. But just one of those people who's, like, really positive and really kind of... What she does is it's almost like theatrical. Yes. Reminds me a little bit of kind of... There's something quite Brechtian about it. Um, but I just love what she's doing, you know, everything she presents. It's always a surprise. Um, and, yeah, so I'm really proud to have been asked to do something on that. And uh, who knows yes. what the future holds. Oh, I know. But, true. yeah, that album's coming out this year. Um, obviously, COVID slowed things down big time. Um, but, yeah, I'm really looking forward to that album. I've, you know, I've heard probably most of it. Um, and, yeah, I, I, that's, that's going to be one great album. Fantastic. So I would look out for that. Gemma Rogers and um, Taylor too. Gemma, right. I'm just making notes. Um, so what would you um, what do you say to an 18-year-old self? You know, you're 18, say, you know, just keeping it kind of basic, you know, just you're a younger self just starting out in, in the world that you, you know, you the path that you trod. You know, if there was something that you could have just whispered into their ear and said, look, matey, just just look out for um, something or check out something, what would that be? I think my advice would be to say yes to everything apart from Class A drugs. Yes. Um, you can always change your mind. Um, not so easy with heroin, so I understand. Uh, I never did Class A drugs, so I'm not, uh, you know, I've, 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 that's uh, following my advice, and I think it was that was a pretty good decision. But I, I didn't say yes to a lot of things that now I think, well, why did I not do that? There was no, there was no reason not to do that. Um, and a lot of projects, because Rough Trade and Jeff Travis especially, was opening doors for me, you know, uh, during weekend, um, just after weekend. And, um, you know, I was in my early 20s. I was, you know... From the valleys where even Cardiff is like the big city, and I guess I, I feel like I was a bit of a coward returning to Cardiff when all the openings were in London. They were there for me to take, and I do regret not having taken on some of the offers that were there. Um, so that's what I, I say to my son. I say, like, look, you know, obviously with certain exceptions. Say when you get an opportunity, say yes. You can always change your mind if you don't like it. Yes. Well, that's that's a good thing to do. Yeah. God, you've had an amazing career, haven't you? On on you know the music. I, I've had an amazing life. I mean, because I mean, throughout the nineties, well, I was kind of skyrocketing in my market research career as well. So, you know, uh, apart from the fact that it offered me stability. That's one of the, the things I take greatest pride in. You know, having had massive influence over you know sort of corporate decisions and brands all over the world yeah that was a it was a little bit well one of my my friends who also moved from london back to south wales last time i walked into the pub to meet him after a space of 10 years he said good evening mr bond uh, because that was the kind of lifestyle I had, you know, in the late 90s. Uh, yes. And, uh, yeah, it was, you know, in international um, top-secret projects, um, very exciting stuff indeed. Yeah, and do you... Very, um, very exciting stuff. And, and do you sort of occasionally drop the odd 
Christmas cards or birthday card to either Stuart or Anison? I don't really need to. You know, it's a little bit, you know, like families, especially like our families. Um, we're a bit lazy when it comes to contact. We tend to contact each other when we need something. Or, or there's some important news to, to share. But we, you know how you kind of take it all for granted? Yes. We're all on absolutely the best of terms. It's just that kind of laziness that comes with, you know, familiarity. We're all, we're all on absolutely, you know, perfectly good terms. And whenever we're together, it's an absolute joy. We did a gig in Barcelona about three years ago. And that was one of the nicest things ever. We were uh, curated by the, um, what's the Museum of Contemporary oh, um, Art? I think it begins with G, doesn't it? The Guernica. Is it, I don't know. Guernica? I think it's the Barcelona. Uh, no, it's, 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 I think it's called the um, Museum of Contemporary Art. Right. That, yeah, let's and it's that right, right in the heart of um, Barcelona. Right. And we did this gig, and it was it was it was a, it's a strange event, you know. There's all all kinds of different things going on. Um, we did this gig, which wasn't really a gig. It was like me and Stuart and Alison on the stage together for the first time ever, and we just spent the night sort of talking, giving a little bit of background to the songs, and just sort of Stuart would play a song, we and Alison and I would play a song. Alison would sing a Yamaha Giant song with Stuart, and it was just so casual. It was beautiful, you know, and just to spend what was a long weekend with Alison and Stu together in that really wonderful city, you know, glorious sunshine. Um, total joy. <laughs> yes. Oh, that's fantastic. That's good. And what, and just, oh, yeah, just lastly, I mean, what what particular you know if you're going to name, which is a bit of a stupid thing to ask really, but like a couple of songs that you think God they they, I know you've already mentioned um, always sunshine, but you know if you just had a couple of songs you thought yeah that I'm really so pleased with those you know that that's that was that's been the high point. I just wonder what they would be. I guess. Midnight Slows was, for me, that was, it was on all kinds of levels, that was like a really interesting recording because it was produced by Simon Jeffs, Penguin Cafe Orchestra, yeah. who were like heroes of mine, you know, he was, he was a hero. Um, so to be in the studio with him, um, that was interesting. Um, and the end result, um, I think that's one of my favourite things of all time um midnight slows initiated by alison when she started off she was the bass player as well as the singer but then it became impractical in terms of performing with bass and her singing it was a bit of a distraction the bass so uh, phil moxon came in and ended up doing that job but yeah on, on that yeah that was that, that was a beautiful song i mean the other thing was doing nostalgia which originally i'd written that for a solo ep so that's like my own, you know, my own composition. So doing that in the studio with Robin Miller, uh, just me and Alison, really. And um, that was that was beautiful just to see it kind of evolve from something very primitive into something much more 
cultured. Yeah. And then surprise, surprise, about four years ago, Mary J. Blige sampled it. Oh wow! She she used it on. It's on a song called Survivor, and it's on the album Strength of a Woman, which didn't sell particularly well, unfortunately for me. Um, but yeah, the, all the music on that is uh, two samples from Nostalgia. Wow. It's amazing. <laughs> and also, because it's interesting, because Robin Miller, I interviewed him a few weeks ago. I mean, he's he's yeah. quite the character, isn't he? Well, quite the um, CV. He, he certainly is. Certainly is. Was that with, with was that with Weekend then Midnight? What yeah, else? and that was no uh, Midnight Slows was was recorded that we recorded that in Blackwing Studio down sort of near Borough, right? Um, Pepper Street. Um, yeah, and so that was the second single, and then the album was recorded in well the first two weeks it was still Morgan, and then the second two weeks it was Power Plant. So we were the last people to record in the old Morgan studio and first to record in Power Plan. But what was weird was when we first met Robin, he still had some sight. So you weren't completely aware that he was losing his sight. Mm. Um, but as as the weeks passed, uh, you could tell that he, he had, by the end of the process, he'd completely lost his sight. And it was really... Disconcerting, you know. It's like, wow, Whew, heavy stuff. But was, what a producer! Yes. I mean, you listen to that album, and literally everything on that album sounds like it could have been recorded yesterday. It's like fresh as a daisy. Nothing to. I mean, it helps because we didn't use any sort of tricks. Um, it was just like real instruments and an ancient, massive plate reverb. But yeah, we. You know, because we didn't resort to all those like flashy, you know, techniques, flashy instruments, no synthesizers, um, it still sounds amazingly fresh. You know, it's mm. it's almost timeless because it it, it 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 doesn't have anything that puts a specific date on it. You know, like some instruments you hear, you know, that guitar sound, it's that era, and. Yeah, so I think that's what's kept it fresh, but it's it's still um, it's shockingly good, you know, the production on that. And that is the end of the interview. A big thank you to Spike. Forgive me the time for that. That was um, also Mark Williams. Um, yes, and um, hope you made notes because there was a lot, a lot of information in there. But, uh, yeah, massive thank you for Mark. Um, this has been David Eastall, The C86 Show. If you want to contact me for some random reason, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 Show. It's all there. And these have all been archived, and you can find those on Spotify, iTunes, and Podbean. Just check it out. Anyway, have a great week.